So I'm going to start from the beginning because we're close to it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. You learned it from Epiphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And then, so there's that, and then we jump into our, our passage here today. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us, oh, I think I have this in the next one. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I just realized I had the wrong slide up there for that second part, but we'll get to that. So that's, most of that was one sentence, because <laughs> that's who Paul is. So what's at the heart of Colossians? As I said, it's the person of Christ. And this is a, remember, this is a, a newly planted church, freshly planted by Epiphras, Paul's co-worker, who is there with Paul as he writes the letter. And in fact, uh, Epiphras may be composing some of it himself. We don't know uh, the details. So Colossians as a letter is a glimpse at the message that people who are new to faith, people who are new Christians or a new church, it's a message to them of people just entering the life with Christ. So it's a message that folks like that need to hear although it contains within it things that we, who have been in the church for a while, people like myself, need to be reminded of reminded of regularly. <laughs> there were too many dis in my reminds. So the main message of Colossians, if I had to sum it up in a sentence, is the sufficiency and exclusivity of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. The sufficiency and exclusivity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that Jesus is sufficient for all your needs, for all your, for your, for your healing, for your well-being, for your future, for your pat, recovering from your past. For all these things, Christ is enough. That is a theme of Colossians, that that is what you need and all you need to have life in Christ and through Christ. And the exclusivity as well, that Jesus and Jesus alone is the Son of God and reveals to us perfectly as a human being who God is, and Christ alone reveals that. And that's a message that is just as challenging today as it was in the pagan world of 2,000 years ago. Maybe for slightly different reasons, but still just as challenging. The sufficiency and the exclusivity of Jesus, the Son of God. 
And then a secondary message kind of underneath all of it and undergirding all of it from the beginning to the end is that you, you people in Colossae, you are now part of a community. By proclaiming Christ as Lord, you are now part of a community of God. And so you have a connection, a sudden connection, a relationship with people all over Rome and the world, the whole world. And that you are being prayed for by these people, not just Paul, but the, the confessing believers throughout the, the, the whole Christian community, and that you too need to be praying for them, that now you have come in and you've come into this reciprocal relationship of which you too need to pray for and care for the saints, the body of Christ. And so that sort of undergirds all that. He never, that's never a sort of a, a um, he doesn't come out and make this argument explicitly, but it just, it, it runs throughout all of it, as we'll see. And that makes sense, right? For a new church, those are things you'd need to hear. To, to the sufficiency of Christ, the exclusivity, and that we are all one in, the, in body and spirit now. And it occurred to me while I was working on this sermon, and it hadn't occurred to me before, just a couple days ago, that we too, as a church, will be planting a church soon. We'll be planting a new church. And in very many ways, just going into a new neighborhood and a new building entails a lot of change. And we are planting a church and so maybe that's part of the reason why God is leading us through this book of Colossians, to say, look, this is, this is the message you're going into, into uh, that Colorado Avenue neighborhood with and for. So it's an establishing letter. It establishes the cornerstone of the church in Colossae, Jesus as the cornerstone. Christ is your leader and your teacher through his Holy Spirit. Christ is your teacher and your leader through his Holy Spirit, not Paul and not Epiphras, or not Peter, or anybody else but Christ. And so it, it, it takes, it, there's, a, um, there's almost a democratizing influence in the letter of Colossae, that we, you know, we are all given over to Christ in, in, this, in this way, um, together. Christ is your leader, he's your teacher through the Holy Spirit, not anybody else, not your pastor, not your mentor, Christ, and Christ alone. And your pastor and your mentors are judged, their efficacy, how well they're doing is judged by how well they draw you to Christ, not by how well they draw you to themselves. And, of course, this message, you're not, you're not isolated in Colossae, you're part of the body of Christ throughout the Roman Empire, and as I said, indeed, the world. Paul is not, in this letter, he's not dealing with the intricacies of faith and good works like he would be in Romans or in Hebrews, he's not dealing with pastoral issues like he, he does in, in the Corinthian letters. It's, it's, a, it's a much more simple and basic message for a church that's brand new. Stay rooted in Christ, get to know Christ better, and you'll be fine. You'll do well. You will be, uh, you'll grow in wisdom and in truth. Now, I should say, when I say more established churches... The oldest any church can be at that point is 20 years old. Okay, we're not talking about like the Roman Catholic Church with that. I mean, this is 20 years after the, the, the crucifixion and resurrection. So, um, but there is a big difference between a church that's been around for 15 years and a church that's been around for one year. I mean, there's a huge difference. We've been around now for, for seven years. We're very different than how we were when we first started. We have microphones now, for example. <laughs> so, Paul has heard about Colossae, he has heard that they have started well. Epiphras has reported him, this church seems healthy. They do seem rooted in Christ. They have begun on the right foot in the right way with their eyes set above, 
with no deep heresies bubbling forth, at least not yet. So the letter has the tone of sort of confirmation and uh, praise of God, thankfulness to God uh, for this church. And you can kind of see that, and that's what all that special coloring was in the... Um, so he's, you know, Paul has these two parts. He's got the, uh, uh, the thanksgiving part, where he starts off the letter by saying, I give thanks to God for you, for this and this, that. And then he has the petition where he says, I pray for God for you, for this and that. So he thanks God for him first, and then he petitions and says, I pray for you in this way. And the, the language, I, what I wanted to point out here is just how similar the language is. If you look at these, uh, these, these uh, colored items here. Um, so for this part, this is the, the thanking God part, the prayers. We thank God for the, uh, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you because we've heard of your faith. Uh, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Um, it just has been doing since the day you heard it, and you truly understood God's grace. And then he uses almost all the same language when he says, I'm praying for you. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. You've grown in knowledge and understanding, bearing fruit in every good work, growing, giving joyful thanks. Now, I'm not going to go through and point out, but just to make the point that he's using the exact same language in his prayers for them that he did in his thanksgiving. And what that indicates, I mean, that's not an accident. The reason he does that is because he's saying, you are already doing well. Continue in what you are doing. The things I'm thanking God for are the things you need to continue doing. Um, it's just sort of a, a literary uh, confirmation of that. So he starts off with the thanksgiving. He goes into the, the, the petition and saying, this is how we're praying for you and the things we're grateful for. Now, I want to dive in a little bit into this. Here we go. This right here. So that. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Now, there's no colon there in the Greek. It just keeps going. They just put those things in there for your benefit. Um, this so that is... Some, sometimes the only way to read Paul is backwards. In other words, his sentences are so long that by the time you get to the end of his sentence, you're like, I'm not even sure what I'm reading anymore. What is, and so you have to kind of go backwards and backwards and backwards, and you realize, oh, this was, this was key. <laughs> All these things are so that, da-da-da-da-da, bearing fruit, living a life worthy. So this, this the beginning of the sentence here, the, the, the predicate here, we, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. That's key. How do you get the knowledge of God's will such that we become a so that church? We want to be a church that lives lives worthy of the Lord. We want to please him in every way. We want to bear fruit in every good work. We want to grow in the knowledge. Of God. We want all these things. So this so that is key. How, are we, how do we know the knowledge of his will? How do we know the will of God? And the answer is right here through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Wisdom and understanding. God's will, the point I'm trying to make with all this, is that God's will is not a set of directions. God's will is not a set of directions. And this is something that I get hung up on sometimes internally. God's will for you really is a maturation of your spirit, of becoming like Christ. That's God's will for you. And the rest is just so much commentary. And we are incredibly hung up on what it is we're going to do on this earth. We're not all that hung up on this. We ought to be, but we're much more hung up on what we're going to do. What are you going to do? 
we have all manners of anxiety about this. I mean, I do too. And so I, I trust you all know what I'm talking about. What should I do? What is my call on this earth? What should I do that's important? What am I doing that's unimportant that I should stop doing? Where should I go? Where should I live? Where should I work? Who should I marry? Should I marry? How ambitious should I be? Is ambition good or bad in the workplace? What should I do with my money, my time, my family, and so on? And, you know, of course what we do in this world is important. And it's important to be praying for each other in this regard and to seek, seek God's will in this area. So I'm not saying that's not important. But we get it backwards because that is much less important than seeking God's wisdom and understanding. Because you're not really the one in charge of what you're doing. <laughs> I've gotten a bit more Calvinistic about this as I've gotten older. <laughs> I'm gone, I haven't gone full Calvin. I've gone half Calvin, um, which there isn't really a theological framework for. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay. It's, it's kind of stupid. But my point being, I, I, don't think, I don't think you really are as much in charge of what you're doing as you think you are. It's like, uh, what's that uh, from Princess Bride? I, I don't think that word thinks it means what you think it means. I got that wrong, but... Because you're not particularly qualified, and this sounds insulting, and I mean it to be, you're not particularly qualified or competent to decide what you should be doing on this earth. I'm not particularly qualified or competent to decide what I should be doing in my day-to-day -day life on this earth. If you want to be sure that you are in fact doing, if I want to be sure that I'm in fact doing what God would have me do, and you want to be sure that you are doing what God would have you do, then don't pay as much attention to what you are doing. And I don't mean that to be clever or tricksy with my words. I mean, I really mean that. Don't pay as much attention to what it is you are doing. Don't make it your primary focus. Don't pretend like you know what you're doing. That is a big danger. Never grow up. You know, I, 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 um, I, Laura and I saw a movie last night that eh, I'll give a B, B plus to, maybe it's called The Big Sick. Has anybody seen it? Oh. It's kind of a clever uh, little rom-com kind of thing, but there, this uh, girlfriend, boyfriend are dating and, and she falls ill with an infection that almost takes her life. So she's put into a medically induced coma and uh, it is a comedy. I know it doesn't sound particularly funny, but uh, <laughs> that's the, the, the premise of it. And there's one line that jumped out at me because I had this on my mind, of course, and things jump out at me. And there's one line I thought that is true. That, nothing else in this movie strikes me particularly true, but that is true. And it's when the, the mother and father of the girl are at the hospital and they're talking to the boyfriend and the boyfriend's like, well, the doctor said she's going to be okay. And the doctors say, you know, they, you know, they've got this plan. It's going to be all right. You know, he's getting quite anxious. And, and the mother said quite, you know, calmly is, and said, you know what? The doctors don't know what they're doing too. They're making this up as they go along as well, you know. And it, for those of you who've been in hospitals and been in serious situations, you do reach that moment where you realize they're just people like me and they're just making this up as they go along too. I mean, they're very educated. They know so much. They, they can do amazing things. But you get that moment, you're like, oh crap, these are just people. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you sort of panic like, my life, my child's life is held by people. <laughs> people are terrible. Uh, you know, so it's, it's that moment, you know, that we don't, you know, and, and Laura said to me yesterday in the context of something else, she's like, I wonder when, or something like, I wonder when we feel like we're finally grown up or when we're, and, you know, and I, we, we decided that I just don't think we do. I think we just don't grow up. We're a bunch of children in charge of the world and the kids don't know it. <laughs> hey, how's it going? <laughs> yeah. 
thankfully, um, yeah, yeah, so we, we don't know what we're doing. So my point, my serious point is don't make the mistake or don't make what you are doing the discerning factor of whether or not you're in his will. Because I think that is secondary, even tertiary. Focus on Jesus and let his Holy Spirit shape who you are and your character and your heart and grow in wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And that is not a doing thing. You don't do that. You, you, don't, you, you don't wake up in the morning like, I'm going to grow in wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives and then, oh, by 9 o'clock I've gained some wisdom and understanding. I mean, that doesn't work. It's, it's an attitude of humility and vulnerability before God. And sometimes before your fellow human beings, but mostly before God. It's an attitude of humility and of vulnerability. It's spiritual humility. It's listening to the Bible, not just reading it or knowing it. It's listening to God's word through the Holy Spirit. And, and yes, to the teachers of the Bible, the ones you identify as respectful and worthy of, of listening to. It's being thirsty for God's presence and yearning to be more like God yearning to be more like God in character and intent. And that opens the doors of your heart wide open to the Holy Spirit when you want to be like Christ. God honors that. And then you'll find yourself in his will. You still won't know what you're doing, but you'll be in his will. It's a life of prayer that seeks to commune with God, not just asking God for things. It's a life of communion with God. And that is the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And then, out of this desire, and and this shift is gradual, and it's not completed in me, but I sense the shift in me, in in the place of wanting to know what you should always be doing will come a desire to be someone. And it will gradually replace that desire to know what you should be doing, but just to be someone. And that is my increasing desire, and I hope yours as a follower of Christ, that what you're doing takes lesser and less importance, and I just want to be that person. And sometimes you have somebody in mind in this world, uh, someone whose faith you, you, you admire, whose humility you admire, who's, you say, I want to be like that person. And really what you're saying is, I want to be like Jesus. That person has just grasped that aspect of the faith life that you have not yet. And that is being in God's will. And we want to just be. And that's increasingly what I want to do. I want to be someone I'm not but I know that God is changing me into that person. Wisdom and understanding. In fact, uh, and I put this up here, just, I mean, Paul's not making up this notion of of wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. I mean, this is an old uh, concept in in, in the Hebrew Bible and and throughout uh, Judaism in general. So this is Proverbs chapter 2. My son, and... and, uh, some Bibles change this to my child for reasons of you know, gender neutrality, and, and often I'm in favor of these kinds of changes. In Proverbs, I'm less in favor because it's specifically, uh, Proverbs starts off as a letter, if you will, written to a, a prince who's going to be a king. It's a, very, it's a specific kind of uh, thing here, and um, it gets particularly important when it gets to talking about sexual and fidel- sexual uh, temptations. And, and uh, you know, Proverbs starts to talk about uh, beware the woman of loose morals, beware the woman who will entrap you with, um, and that's not, it's not that the person who wrote Proverbs is sexist and, and is it's just he's talking to a young man, so hence, you know, I say that because, you know, it sounds like they're not worried about men of loose morals or men of loose character, just not applicable in this instance. That doesn't really matter to any of this, but just as an aside. 
My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and implying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path, for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. That is the path of wisdom. That is being in the will of God. It isn't about the practicalities. It's about pursuing knowledge and wisdom in this regard. And I like this every good path, which is why I highlighted it. There's a broadness in being in, in, the, in the will of God. Uh, you will understand what is right, what is just and fair. Every good path, there's a sense of a branching. And in fact, it, it comes out in... Um, I didn't put that in there, did I? Okay, never mind, I'll skip that. Um, but I, I like this notion of the broadness in, in, in God's goodness and, and the broadness of being in God's will. We want, interesting enough as humans, we often want our path to be narrowly defined in terms of what we should do. And we want to know what, is, what, what it is ahead of time. And we do. I, I feel that too. I wish I knew what I should do. And that's because trust and faith are difficult for us. We, we don't like that darkness ahead of us of what's not, we don't know what's happening next week or next year. We want to be told what to do and then trust that because we're doing the right things, good things will happen. It's very simple. We have a very logical way of thinking about it as human beings. But that's not God's will for us. God's will is for us to be in mystery and to trust him, trust that he holds the future, and we go into it with faith. Thank you. And... That, it's interesting, that's the path that we want to be narrow. We want that path to be narrow. The, like, this, God, tell me what to do, and I'll do it. But we balk at Christ being the only path to wisdom and truth and salvation. That's the path we want to be broad, which I find, you know, intrinsically, internally, I, I reflect on this sometimes just on myself, like, why is that? What, what is that in me? That I, I want one path to be broad and another path to be narrow. It does make us anxious, and we're going to get, as we grow deeper into Colossians, we're going to get very much into the, what I call the exclusivity of Christ. It makes us anxious, especially in this culture, back in the Roman Empire too, to say that God is God and God alone. That God, that there is one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one God, and through him and him alone comes truth and wisdom and holiness and love. We want that path to be broader. It'd be easier if it would be broader. And why is that? Well, if I'm really honest with myself, and I did some digging this week, like, where is that? What is that really coming from? Because then I can make God into my image. And that's what it is. That's the, depth, that's the real core of wanting that path to be broad. It's much easier, requires less in the long run. I mean, choice it has to be the defining aspect of our commercial culture, right? Choice, at least it's a huge one. And if the narrow gate is broad, then God comes with a remote, right? I don't like this station, I'll try this one. And people do that within the church or indeed outside of the church, you know, spiritually speaking. I don't think this app is right for me. I'm going to delete it and give me another one. It'll still be God, just my favorite flavor. <laughs> 
God's a bit too intrusive in this one. I'll, I'll try something else. Don't underestimate how hard it is for us to bend the knee and give God sovereignty in our lives. Because we can think we're doing it, but we're really partitioning off parts of our life away from God and saying, I don't want to give God my everything. People frequently come to God. I came to God wanting God's blessing and even God's presence and his comfort and the Holy Spirit and his mercy and his forgiveness. We want, we want these things. Churches preach these things and they're true. And we come to the Lord and it gets to that moment, to that point, And we're a little unwilling to bend the knee and say, I just want, there's these good things. But God, I don't know if I want to give you my whole life. That, I don't know. Does that lead to crazy town? I'm not sure. I, I'm uncertain. Can I trust you? I'd like to keep some, you know, something reserved over here, lest I end up sacrificing goats at midnight. I'm just not sure, God. Can I trust you? The thoughts that I have. They may not be your thoughts. <laughs> when I, well, in, in all seriousness, when I first became a Christian, I had thoughts like, am I going insane? What, is this a cult? I meant the body of Christ writ large. Is it a cult, not the specific church? I mean, is, am I losing my mind? So, you know, I, I had these thoughts. And I had, at some point, I had to say, God, I'm just, I trust your character. I trust Jesus. God, if, if you are Jesus, if this is who God is, then I'm going to do the trust fall, right? And I'm just going to trust you'll catch me. I may be going crazy, but it's the best kind of crazy I know. <laughs> and, you know, We'll all go crazy eventually in this world, so I'll pick the best one. But I had to hand it over. I had to hand over my beliefs, my sovereignty of my life. I had, had to hand over my, my control. That was very hard for me to do. Still, sometimes, is very hard for me to do. And this might be in you, too. And Colossians pushes against this, and again, we'll get to this uh, next week or the week after, in very direct ways. It's kind of easy for me to spot where I'm at with this God's sovereignty thing. And I, I go in sort of waves in it. Um, and all I have to do is read the scriptures. Um, enter through the narrow gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable or awkward or you kind of want to look off to the side... You haven't really given up your sovereignty to God. If you can read that and rejoice in that and say, God, you know. God, you're the judge. God, you, I trust you with judgment. Hell is another one that tests people's sovereignty of God. People want to know who's going to, I mean, salvation is like, well, I, these people I love who don't know the Lord, what's, you know, they're very, and I just encourage you to let that all go because you're not God and it doesn't matter what you think about that. Your job is to love everybody. You're not in charge of salvation or lack of salvation. That's just not your job. For pastors, too. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I'm not, not the judgment police. Um, and there, there are times when I read that. Yeah, there are times when I read that. Or, or you know, pick your, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me, from, from the Gospel of John. Sometimes I read that and my heart just sings. I'm like, thank you, Jesus, for being the road of our salvation. And there are times I read that and I'm like, why? <laughs> Can't there be somebody else too? I mean, really, like my heart will express the degree to which I've given over to Christ in that moment. So they're like, you know, uh, litmus tests of where you're at spiritually there. I would bet, I would think, I'm going to conjecture that I'm running late in time, but I'm going to keep going here. 
I, I, this teaching, the narrow gate, when Paul wrote about this and the will of God and, and the, the rest of the, the uh, passage there, I think he must have had this in mind. Paul rarely uh, quotes Jesus directly in his letters. Uh, he almost never does. But you can kind of see uh, sort of like the outline of Jesus' teachings behind Paul's letters. and We could talk more about why that is later. But I kind of find that here. Um, you'll notice, um, so this is the passage we're in. Uh, we ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. And then the very next thing he says, uh, you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. That's, so he, and then he talks about that, what it means to bear good fruit. Well, the very next passage after that Matthew passage is this one. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Every good tree bears good fruit. So it's interesting to me that sort of this theme of being in God's will and the narrowness of it, or at least as I extrapolate from this, and this is just conjecture, I can't prove this, but they both follow on. The next immediate thing they talk about is bearing good fruit for what it's worth. Um, so I, I think these are, are related things. And Paul is concerned about Colossae and, and uh, bearing good fruit. And he gets into that more later. Colossae is very close to Laodicea. And um, we'll talk about this later, but you remember Laodicea was the church that did not do very well in the Revelation, uh, you know, how healthy is your church test. Uh, they were not very healthy at all. And there are false prophets and false teachers almost immediately after the resurrection going around and saying things about Jesus that are not true or that were um, for the benefit of the speakers. Uh, and we'll talk more about that later. So he is concerned about false prophets, good fruit, and bad fruit. Okay, so I, I need to wrap up here. I guess the two, two things I'll end with here. In the same way, so talking to Colossae, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven about which you've already heard and the true message of the gospel has come to you through Epiphras. Okay, and then Paul says, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Now, this good fruit and, and this, this will of God thing, when you are strengthened with the power of his glorious might, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. I think I'll, I'll end with this here. To be strengthened with all the power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance, endurance and patience and give joyful thanks. When we think of being strengthened with power according to the glorious might of God, there is power in, the, in knowing Jesus and being, having the blessing of the Spirit. There is genuine, I'm, I would confess to you as a believer that I have seen powerful things transpire in people's lives and miracles, things that, things that have really moved me and touched me and amazed me beyond what I expect God to do. So there is that power of the Holy Spirit healings and, and uh, miraculous events in people's lives. It is real. And I hope as we open up more and more to the Spirit as a church that we will see more of those things among us as a people, as a community. If the more we're open to the Spirit, the more it'll happen. But the, you know, as Paul says here, there's a deeper strength that is not about that which is flashy. I, I mean, I don't, flashy sounds, I don't mean to cheapen that, but you know what I mean. Miracles do have a flashy element to them, like you know, here's this amazing thing that happened. But endurance and patience is what he stresses here. 
Yet you're strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. He's speaking to this new church that you may have endurance and patience. That's the long game. And that's what I, I feel like a lot of Christians and a lot of churches are not playing the long game. They're playing a, a shorter game a lot of times. And they like things that are more flashy and more immediate. And I love, which is the core of the gospel, takes time. Discipleship does not happen quickly. In fact, it happens over the course of a whole lifetime. You're not done with discipleship when you're my age. You're not done with discipleship when, you, forgive me, Jerry's age. Uh, you knew that was coming. <laughs> it's, it's, a life, it's a lifetime experience. And endurance and patience are things that church needs to be stressing more than the other things right now. I mean, it's always a balance. You can go too far that way too and start to say, well, the Spirit doesn't do anything amazing anymore in that sense. But boy, does our culture need endurance and patience. I mean, just look at families. Just look at marriages. Look at, you know, this notion of the long game is getting harder and harder to find. And, and so I, I encourage you to play the long game. I am. That's how I pastor. That's my life. That's my, I'm, I'm in this uh, till, till, I, till my last breath. And if we do that, I think uh, the fruit we bear over the course of years and decades will be, well, it'll, it'll go past our, our, past our death. It'll, be, it'll, it'll move on for years. If we need to see things right away, we kill the spirit. Endurance and patience. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Like I said, when he's writing to Colossae, he's emphasizing all the time that you're part of a community now. You share in the inheritance of his holy people, and you give joyful thanks. And we do. We give joyful thanks with all Christians throughout the world for what God has done. And I think that's as good a segue to communion as I will ever get. Let's pray.